we are re-live, and I'm sorry about that. Someone decided to Instagram call me, which is a mistake, because one, I don't ever pick up my phone without a scheduled phone call, so don't call me unless you schedule them, because my phone's on do not disturb. I don't pick up my phone. It's probably an accident. It could be, but you know, I'll, I'll never pick up a random call, so hopefully you guys have audio now on this one. So someone tried to like Instagram video me, and I guess that knocked out the audio. I don't know. So if you guys can let me know if we have audio, I'd appreciate that. If not, we're just going to keep talking and assume that you can hear Yes, us. if you don't type in and let me know that I have audio, we're just going to keep talking and assume that you can read our lips. <laughs> read, Which is a very valuable skill. Read, read my lips Thank because you. I'm talking out of my ass. Thank but um, this is episode 32. We're restarting it, so we'll reshare that. And we talked about pass or fail. There's no true failure unless you haven't learned from it. But you you can look at pass or fail from, if you want to go academically, 70%. You know, if you if you pass medical school with a 70%, you still pass medical school. You're still, you're still a doctor. You know, whether you've passed with 100 or 70, you're still a doctor. And if you improved your total, then you pass on meet day. If you didn't improve your total or you didn't improve any lifts, uh, you didn't necessarily fail. You just failed to learn what you need to do better. And that's why we self-evaluate and look back and do things. You know, we always want to have that process of evaluation. First and foremost, I will say, if it ain't broke, don't don't fix it. it. That's the biggest mistake people make is they try and fix what's already working. It's like, it's already working. Wait for it to stop working before you try and fix something that isn't broken. But if something is broken or not progressing or getting anywhere, then evaluate and fix it. Now let's let's define what's not progressing means. Because some people are like, I haven't PR'd my lift in three months. Dude, it took me <laughs> three years to go from 727 in a meet to 744. And then 744 became 761, 766, and 771, and 788, and 804. They happened like rapid fire because I kept doing the work even though it wasn't there. Just because you're stagnant doesn't mean you're not stacking dividends and progressing over time. It just means you can't show it yet because you haven't learned how to express it and how to show it. I did things a little bit differently back then as far as the peaking. And the older I got, the less my recovery was. So I learned not to take that heaviest deadlift so close to the meat because that's what it was back then. I would take it like 11 days out. And now I take it like three weeks out. Three weeks doesn't mean 21 days. It just means the three weeks until the meat are left. So it's usually like... 18, 17 days, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, I had to self-evaluate, like why was I lifting more or capable or showing more in gym and not in the meet and what was the failure from? And the failure was just from a lack of recovery from my heaviest pull and so forth. And it just shot up even though I was doing all the work and showing PRs and progress along the way, I wasn't able to express them. So just because you haven't made a platform PR doesn't necessarily mean you haven't progressed either. And that, that goes for almost anything in life. There's a lot of things that just stack dividends and compound over time. And so pass or fail really needs to be over a long scope of time. Somebody messaged me today, one of my clients, Tyler, he's gotta have uh, a labrum cleaned up, torn shoulder from baseball injury years ago. And he's got like three weeks for the surgery. He's like, can we do hypertrophy? I'm like, dude, you're not gonna see any hypertrophy in three weeks. (laughs) I'm like, if you dedicated 16 to 20 weeks of hypertrophy and upped your cows the entire time, yeah, but realistically, you're not gonna grow in three weeks. Adding a couple weeks of hypertrophy isn't how you see muscle size. Adding three, four months of hypertrophy is how you see muscle mass. It's a slow process. So you have to be along for that slow, long process. So, and that's where you also understand pass or fail. It's not measured in daily increments. It's measured in yearly increments. Yeah, I've had this conversation too about failure with a lot of lifters this week, even for some that haven't competed yet. Cause they're like, well, what if I don't live up to expectations? I'm like, well, first of all, the only expectations that are set is are the ones that you're putting on yourself, mm-hmm. right? So this lifter, she was like, what if I don't live up to my expectations? And I'm like, whose? And she was like, well, my own. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you're the only one placing any external stress on you. 
And like, ultimately, this isn't your last meet. Or maybe it is, but, you know, it's, it's not. Um, you know, like, she's like, this is not going to be my last meet. So there's always time to grow and get better. And she was like, well, what if I disappoint myself? And I'm like, well, it's okay to feel, like, it is okay to feel disappointed. But ultimately, what is feeling disappointed going to do for you, right? Action alleviates anxiety in that yep. aspect. So feeling disappointed for, like, five minutes, cool. Wallow in it. Throw yourself a pity party, sit in the corner, do whatever you have to do for five minutes, and then get over it. Because ultimately, that's not going to actually progress you any further if you're just wallowing in the fact that you didn't do great. How you get better is going back to work and improving on the things that you improved upon. But like feeling negatively about your performance isn't a bad thing. I felt negatively about my showdown performance, but like if I was still pissy about it uh, four weeks later, what does that do for me other than it puts me in a bad mood all the time? Get over it. Yeah. You know, I'm usually more upset about what I didn't try to do yes. than versus what I did yeah. and can learn from because if I didn't even try, then I'm just, I've already let myself down. I've already quit before the process even started. So I've only pulled out of one meet in my entire life that I didn't think the meet was going to happen. I didn't want to spend money in a hotel and travel the whole nine because rum eight didn't look like it was going to happen. Raw United meet eight. So I, I pulled out like a month for the meet because they didn't have an active hotel. They didn't have a venue. It was a mess. And when the meet came around and a lot of people had fun and did great, I'm like, I could have done great. I, I could have been there. I could have enjoyed that experience. That's the only meet I've ever pulled out of. Even with injuries, I've stayed in full power meet. Uh, people think I'm crazy and that might be the case, but uh, more along the lines of dedicated, like what can I do? What are my capabilities? I always want to know what my capabilities are and can I stretch them even further? And that's where a lot of people actually fail is they just don't try. Yeah. Show me someone who's gone nine for nine every meet and I'll show you someone who's only competed one time. Or someone who's never, never tried. Never like tried. Like yeah. I, I remember the only meet that I've gone nine for nine was my first meet. And like, personally, my first thought was, oh, I could have lifted a lot more, mm -hmm. you know? And like, yeah, like going five for nine, I've gone five for nine a few times now. And I think seven for nine a few times. Um, and those I'm at least okay with. Cause I'm like, well, I tried, I failed my third, but I tried, but I tried. you know, um, at the showdown, I went five for nine. But I still tried. I didn't scratch a third. I didn't scratch any of my seconds or anything like that. I just tried again. And that's okay. At least I know. I have the peace of mind of knowing that I tried instead of just being like, oh, I'll just I'll just scratch because I know I won't get it. Yeah. What if I had? Passing you know? is passing is trying your capabilities. Failing is quitting before you get to them. So well, let's get to some questions. Don't be a quitter. Don't be a quitter. <laughs> um, huh? Okay, one question that I got asked... Uh, actually three times. Um, so I feel like it's uh, something to go over. Is it the are you single question? No, I never get that question. <laughs> Not three times? Mm -hmm. I should try. I should DM you more often. Then. <laughs> um, the question that I got three times was, what do you eat the morning of the meat? Three times. We get that question a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. really, it's really, uh, I, I don't know why I find it so interesting that this is always the question, but my answer is generally always the same. Um, I don't eat really anything different than what I eat on a normal breakfast basis. Like my breakfast almost every single day is three slices of turkey bacon and a bagel or two English muffins or an English muffin and a half or whatever. That's my breakfast every single day. Um, on meat day, my anxiety is a little bit higher. So do not, uh, eat, do not eat honey buns, guys. Yeah, don't do <laughs> um, So on, um, on me day, my anxiety is a little bit higher, so my appetite is a little bit smaller, so I will pretty much nix the uh, turkey bacon, also because I don't 
necessarily care about protein on meat day. I'm just looking for the fast fuel from the carbs and like the sustained fats throughout the day too. So for breakfast, I will try to keep it to something like a bagel with some like, I like Kerrygold butter um, or a bagel with peanut butter. I think I had a pumpkin spice peanut butter bagel before showdown. Um, She's just showing off now. Or, uh, or oatmeal with peanut butter, but something along those lines of like hearty carbs. Bagels, muffins, scones, um, oatmeal, something like that. Um, but I don't necessarily care about getting the protein in. I will hydrate first thing in the morning too, and then I'll eat the um, the carbs. Probably ends up being probably about an hour before we get to yeah. the menu. If you've seen the recomp video I've talked about where I talk about certain things I eat as part of the recomp, I kind of stick with that same formula morning of. Uh, my, my biggest meal during the meet is, is that breakfast because I kind of like that thicker belly feeling for squat for that brace and have that mass under the bar. Um, I don't eat junk usually, like it's not a time for honey buns. Somebody mentioned honey buns, I hope he's kidding. But it's not a time for like Pop-Tarts and honey buns because you're gonna crash. Yep. So usually, you know, we're sometimes at the mercy of what the hotel has. If the hotel doesn't have a breakfast with the age of COVID, that's pretty common these days, we might find a local spot and it's the kind of time that I will usually do like oatmeal, bagels with butter, uh, orange juice as part of the recon to get calcium in for muscle contraction and so forth. I'm not usually looking to have things that are gonna upset my stomach and I want things that are a little bit slower in the digestion rate. Um, just so it's sustainable. So if people are eating like sugary cereals and crappy foods, uh, I, I love having like yogurt parfaits and stuff like that that have like whole fruit in them because the fructose is a little bit slower digesting and sustainable energy. Uh, I'll have a big meal for breakfast because it will usually, I, I'm hungry all the time and digest really quickly but sustains the energy for a longer term period. So that's usually what I have. I, like, like Riley, I don't chase a lot of protein for breakfast. I don't need it. There's some protein in there and I will just make sure I have some protein throughout the day but not a lot of it until the nighttime. And then during the meet, we often talk about eating more sustainable carbs and easily digestible fats. I'm not a big fan of really bulky, heavy proteins or big meals during meat because it gets uncomfortable. I had one meat experience where I got lazy and I brought nothing but like meal replacement and protein bars and the sugar, alcohols and fibers in there bloated me so much I couldn't get my deadlift belt on and get down to the actual deadlift bar for my second and third attempt. It was so bad. It was a very valuable lesson early in my competitive days that I had to learn. So usually I'll stick to, you know, during the meet, I'll stick to like oranges, apples, things are whole food. Applesauce is a great one because they get the tubs and just down them real quick. Um, peanut butter and crackers because the crackers have some sodium in there for me. They keep me kind of hydrated throughout the day so I don't cramp up. The peanut butter has a small amount of protein in there, a little bit of fiber, which also helps sustain and healthy fats that digest easily. I don't like to eat thick, solid foods and I can get that anywhere. I can go to any grocery store and get that anywhere we go for any competition and so forth. If you like the convenience, you can also yeah. buy Uncrustables. Some people will do that, like peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly Uncrustables that, you know, I try not to have like too refined of stuff, but you can do that. I've seen people do that. But what you really don't want to do is have anything you're not necessarily used to or anything that you know that might upset your stomach or things that are going to take heavy amounts of digestion. You know, it's not a time for T-bone steak, bacon, and eggs for breakfast because that's going to be really hard for you to digest and compete all day. You want things that are going to go fast fuel, easily break down, usable energy. You don't want to slow yourself down because if you have a big bulky meal, it can take as much as 30% of your body's energy to break that down. And I don't know about you, but I would like 100% of my body's energy to lift. And most of the energy I had anyways is going to come from the eating you did the day before. Yep. Remember that, it's gonna come from the eating you did it before, unless you're like USAPL on two hour weigh-ins. And in that case, you definitely wanna to stick to things like you know bagels, oatmeals, and healthier fats, and so forth. Uh, small amounts of protein, nothing major, nothing fried. 
some people who have like fried foods for breakfast, like how are you lifting to the best of your abilities when your body can't well, even not. break that down? They just they think they are. Exactly. They're not, they're not you just think they Exactly. Are. So those are the kinds of things you want to do, but you know, I wasn't kidding. I went Oh, he's actually defending his honey buns. Cool, good for you. I didn't see you at the Kerner showdown, but so if you want to be the king of the local meat, I'm sorry for being that guy, but I'm going to be honest. Amateur habits are for amateur meats. You know, if you want to get to the next level, you've got to have pro level habits. Um, it's something I don't apologize for because people will often ask me what I can do better. And I'm going to tell them it's not the training that you can do better. It's your habits. I have a bedtime. I follow nutrition structure. I count my macros. I do those things that have not only gotten me to that level, but have kept me there for 15 years. There's not a lot of people who can say they've been at this sport and at this level for 15 years. They're few and far between. Who was it that, I think I think you said it was Ben Pollock, who someone was like, once you weigh in, what's your treat to yourself? And he was like, yes. the treat to myself, or he's like, the reward for myself is weighing in on weight. Correct. He was like, I don't care about the food. He's like, the whole there was it, is, it was Ben Pollock, and he yeah. said, the, the result is the reward. Yeah. I don't reward myself with crap. That's a punishment, because he knows he has to compete the next day. Yeah. The result is the reward. Can you get away with those things for a certain amount of time? Yes. Sure. Will you sustain it and get better from it? No. You're going to get as good as your habits are going to be. Yep. And that's why, I'm, like I'm saying, I'm not coming down on you personally because a lot of people do that. That's why all we see is like five-pound bags of Sour Patch Kids on yep. day. And we've, we've talked about it in so many podcasts. If you're eating candy by, dead, by, by squats, you're, you're dead by deadlifts. Like you're flat. You've crashed. You've come down. You, know, you have to have more expectation of yourself. There are so many people who have great training cycles and they're eating big goods and brownies that people have made for the meat from breakfast time on and they're shit by bench and they're shit by deadlifts and it's like, well, like, well what happened? I'm like, well, you did that to yourself. It kind of comes down to like respect for yourself. Right. If you respect yourself enough to fuel yourself like an athlete, you will get the, uh, the result that you want. Right, really right. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, if you treat yourself like an athlete, you will perform like an athlete. So feed yourself like an athlete. Don't feed yourself like a child because then you're going to have childlike results. Or if you don't care and you just are content with competing at the level that you're at, then don't care and that's fine. You know, like that's, I think that's, it's uh, everyone's uh, interest level is going to be different. This is a unique question. It's more on mindset and uh, it's still, Sarah, I have noticed that I tend to aim low due to fear of disappointment. Is there some strategies that can be used to set realistic yet challenging enough goals to avoid hindering your own potential? Um, this is something we've talked about in different podcasts. There's no such thing as an unrealistic goal unless you're unwilling to do the work or changes required to achieve it. Or that you have an unrealistic timeline. Right. So you have to have an appropriate timeline and you have to have the willingness to do the work necessary to achieve it. Like I said, uh, I'll use an example. Like if someone competes at 132 and says they want to have a 2,000 pound total, I'm like, well, you're going to have to probably be willing to go up and wait and maybe even put on multiply gear to get there because that makes it realistic. You know, if you're, if you're wanting to stay at the 132 weight class, nobody has ever achieved a 2,000 pounds total at 132 weight class. So it's probably not the most realistic goal. So when you're looking at, you know, your goals and challenging yourself is, is you should have um, something that is reachable and something that is just out of reach. And then as you reach the first reachable goal, the second one's gonna seem less and less out of reach because you've gotten closer to it, which is why we set shorter term goals and longer term goals. And sometimes we set those like to the moon goals, but those to the moon goals aren't in six months, they're in six years. And you have to look at it from that. If you wanna set goals that challenge you, set them longer term, and then start evaluating on a daily basis what you can do to get there. I also would like to ask, who told you that you would be a disappointment? You know, um, exactly. so that's one thing that I hear people say a lot is like, they're like, well, I'm, I'm scared to fail. I'm scared of someone judging me. I'm scared of someone thinking that I'm stupid. I'm scared of someone feeling disappointed. 
or me disappointing someone. Who told you that you would be a disappointment or that you would be a failure? The answer is probably your own brain and your own brain can generally be a liar. You know, if there's someone in your life that is telling you that you would be a disappointment because you didn't achieve X total, then cut them out. Um, they don't need to be in your life anyways because if they're equating your worth with whatever your total is or whatever that is, whatever the situation is, you don't need them anyways. But ultimately, like ask yourself, who, who are you worried about disappointing? If it's yourself, then needs a little bit more reflection there, but your, as far as like I mentioned with um, your worth, if you equate yourself, if you specifically equate your self-worth with what your total is, there needs to be some reevaluation of your priorities, right? Um, because everyone wants a big total and everyone wants to be strong, everyone wants all that, like that's why we do this. But you can't get a job with your total, you can't start a business with your total, you don't find your partner generally with your total, you know? so like evaluating why you think that it would be a disappointment um is probably the first step that you need to do before you do what trevor did and you know like set those like multi-level goals basically or stepping stone goals to like the really big goal and adjust the timeline but ultimately like reflect on why you feel like uh anyone would think that you're a disappointment for your total because yeah. you're probably setting the expectation for yourself rather than anyone actually telling you that you would be a disappointment I know it sounds a little weird to say this, but nobody cares as much as you do. I mean, people will generally care. Your friends and your family are going to want to see you do well. They're going to want to see you thrive. But you have to care enough to do the work. And so you can't disappoint yourself if you're doing those things. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Josh actually commented back. He goes, no, I wasn't defending myself. He's like, you're totally right. <laughs> I did bad on me day. But seven and nine is not a bad day. But I just, you know, you can always be better. And those are the things I like to self-reflect on. Because I myself have made that mistake. I've, I've been that guy who would eat nothing but like Pop-Tarts for breakfast because it was easy. Or um, the, the time I brought nothing but new replacement bars and then I couldn't even get to the bar because my stomach had distended so much. I've made those mistakes. That's why I'm unapologetic about it and why I express to people that you can have better habits. Yes, it might take five minutes more effort, but that five minutes more effort is going to be worth so much more on your total, so much more on your, on your goals, and so much more to your life. Absolutely. Uh, uh, ditch and battery. I'm trying to see if we got more questions so she can grab one here. Uh, okay. So, can you share some info about getting stubborn hips to open up? That's a very non-specific. Non <laughs> yeah. That's kind stubborn of hips to open for squats, stubborn yeah. hips to open for sumo, stubborn hips to hinge back to get to the deadlift bar for a conventional. It's a little bit non-specific, and so I, I kind of joke earlier that if you want great answers, you have to ask great questions. I would specify what that means to you because your, your hips are stubborn, they don't open. Open in what movement? And generally when there is some stiffness, there is either a lack of stability or a lack of strength in the muscles involved in that action. So for example, if somebody has tight quads, it doesn't necessarily mean that their quad muscle itself is tight because it's weak, it can be. But usually it's tightening up because it's shouldering the load for a stabilizer somewhere up or down below the chain that's not doing its job, so it has to stiffen to create artificial stability. Tightness is generally a lack of stability first and a lack of strength second within that target muscle group. So, you know, it's one of those things where if your hips are stubborn, figure out where your lack of stability is coming from first. Maybe you have poor bracing so the hips can't open because they don't feel stacked and stable. I'm going to use sumo as an example. When some people struggle to externally rotate, it's because their bracing and their core strength is, is horrible and they go into like extension so the hips don't want to externally rotate because the glutes don't want to do well or do well or do the job or hip extension doesn't work well because you've gone into like a hard tilt of the pelvis. So there's a lack of pelvic stability there. So why should it open? 
there also has to be a balance of external as well as internal rotation. This is kind of what I talked about in my story. If you're someone who constantly lives in external rotation, but you're trying to get yourself more externally rotated for a sumo, you could be being restricted because your internal rotation of your hip is weak. So it has to go in a flux to where both are needing to be worked on. So generally if someone is like, oh, my, my hips are hurting, I'm not able to externally rotate, I generally have them work on internal rotation exercises as well as yep. external rotation. So that way they can get the balance of both because in a squat and a deadlift, you have to go through both. Both, yeah, if you're, sumo, breaking, if you're yeah. breaking parallel. <laughs> Say, sumo, sumo generally only external External, rotation. yeah. Uh, same thing with conventional. So Matt wants to know, Fig Newtons and Pedialyte, I meet the yay or nay. I do love Fig Newtons, they're freaking delicious. Yeah. Uh, Pedialyte, absolutely. Once you're past the weighing stage though, Pedialyte's probably not your best bet because it's designed for infants. It's very, very gentle with a very minute amount of minerals in there. So when you're first coming back after the weigh-ins, let's say you've cut significant weight, I know you go to 81 sometimes, Pedialyte's probably your best first drink for like the first hour or two, and then you can switch to something a little bit more dense. Um, so I usually will put a gallon together that has like eight propel packets in there and drink that. Plus I make my intra-workout drink. Uh, like the last minute I had a, a scoop of greens. I had, um, some propel packs in there. I had some creatine in there. That I, so I had like two gallons. I actually ran out of fluid at the show though. That's what happens when you cut the, well, that's what happens when I cut the 81. I go through 14 pounds of fluid meat of the day. I was stealing hers. Um, so I would say absolutely start with the Pedialyte, but progress to something a little bit more growing up from there. As far as Fig Newtons, I wouldn't go crazy on them but Fibers. figs themselves yeah there's a lot of fiber in there and that might that might work its way down so like having a small amount of food with a couple fig newtons absolutely eating an entire row of fig newtons uh probably not your best idea during the meet in one sitting uh you asked a question earlier about how much pizza can i eat too much um, the, uh, if you wanted to progress from Pedialyte, ones that we tried that we actually liked were the Liquid IV. Um, they have a lot of different flavors and they actually have carbs to them too. So not only are you getting like the minerals um, that you need and like the sodium, magnesium, calcium, and potassium, you're also getting a little bit of carbohydrates too. Um, I know that the Element packets are really popular and it's like a gram of salt. That's kind of a lot and some people they have to be, be careful. Diluted. Yeah, you yeah. gotta dilute them. You gotta be careful with stuff like that because some people's hands will blow up and then they can't yep. hold the barbell anymore. Um, so They're I great for the day of weigh-ins, yeah. rehydration. They're probably not the best because they're so stacked yeah. on meat day unless you've heavily diluted them. Um, so from a science perspective, we'll go over this real quick because Gatorade, before creatine came out, Gatorade was the most widely studied sports supplement for 30 years and most effective sports supplement as far as rehydration. Uh, of course, it came from the University of Florida because Florida people do that shit. But it was a 7% carbohydrate solution. And there's some interesting, interesting stuff that came out. Like when Powerade first came out, that was their big marketing point that it had 33% more carbohydrates than Gatorade. It was too thick. Too thick to be rapidly absorbed, rapidly digested. So you don't want to go beyond 7% carbohydrate solution, which was the original Gatorade formula. That's why a lot of people will actually do the Pedialyte because it's, it's more diluted than that as the first drink. But you can go to like G2 or some people will even water down Gatorade a little bit so it's very, very easily digestible. Your liquid should be just as easily digestible as your foods. So if you're doing something that is too thick or too much sugar or too much sodium, it could have a detrimental effect. You want these things to ease into your system as much as possible. So you can consider that as well when you're talking about food sources. How dense are they? And if they're dense, have very small amounts of them, not a lot. We only really need to be grazing to kind of subdue hunger a little bit during the day and just making sure that we replenish a little bit of calories and fuel. We don't need to be full. If you're full on meat day, you've probably eaten too much. Gonna have a bad time. Or you need to have some baby wipes on hand. <laughs> Milk was a bad choice. Milk was a bad choice. 
Prong versus lever belt for squat and deadlift. As of right now, I only use a 13 millimeter lever for both. To clarify, that was a question on what belt you prefer to squat and deadlift with. I think that 13 millimeters are just a little bit too thick for majority of people, unless you're super heavy weights. Or in gear. Yeah. Yeah, if you're competing in single and multiply, the 13 millimeter belt's gonna be a little bit more stout and stacked. If you were raw, you probably don't need a 13 millimeter belt. 10 will do just fine. Uh, I have two different belts. I have my squat belt and my deadlift belt. My squat belt is a Pioneer lever belt. My deadlift belt is like a cheap, um, I don't remember the company. It's like Lifting Large. Lifting Large, I think. Yeah, yeah. liftinglarge.com. Um, it's also a 10 millimeter. It's a little bit thinner. It feels thinner than my Pioneer one. It's not as thick. It's not as good quality lever. And it's a little bit more pliable, which helps me get to the bar for, for deadlifts. I don't like the same compression tension on deadlifts that I like on squats. Um, as far as lever or prong, that's really just a personal preference. Lever or prong, neither one's better. It's just which ones you like to lift in. And some people like the prong because they can, like I do, I, I like more compression on my squat than I do on my deadlift. I'm, I'm that guy who has two belts. If you just have a prong belt, you probably need one belt because you can loosen it up. That's me. Yeah, I like, the, I like the prong for that specific reason because I do yeah. like it tighter for squats and looser for deadlifts. So the prong just lets me adjust. I have the Pioneer cut, so there's very, there's very small adjustments that can be made, so I find that beneficial. All right, this is a good question from Joey. There's one above Joey, though. Is there one above Joey? Oh, thought on, on Nun tablets. Noon. They're noon. so... There's, noon. I think noon. it's noon. noon. I don't know. They're so... One, they taste awful. Um, and I feel like they're so low in what you're getting, you may as well just use a propel pack. They're also carbonated, and that carbonation can cause some significant bloat and gas pain and irritation. It's great if you're an ultra-endurance athlete who's running on the road and can blow your ass out while you're running and not care about the guy behind you. It's not so great when you have a bar loaded on your back and you're squatting your deadlift because blowing your ass out when you've been eating all day might lead to some little bit more coming out than just air. Free tip. Pro tip. You're welcome. Pro tip from somebody who used to use them and had some ass blowout that wasn't just air. So, true story. A couple times. Usually I was passing out in the process too. Uh, we always ask about weight cuts. This is the first meet for me with no cut. Went up a weight class. Do you suggest being as close to the weight class as you were competing in or what is comfortable? Uh, this is a perfect question right now from the scenario because I'm going up from 181 to 220. Right now I'm weighing somewhere between 209 to 211 given the day. I don't plan on weighing in at 219 or 220 because it would make me nasty and uncomfortable feeling and I don't want to do that. If you're going up a weight class, you want to gain weight slowly because if you're gaining weight at a rapid pace, faster than say a half pound a week or so, it's not good weight. It's just fat and you can't flex fat and, and fat doesn't help you necessarily move more weight and more mass, especially if it was gained in a short amount of time. There are some people who have a tremendous amount of leverage from their body mass and extra fat that they carry, but they've been using and carrying that mass for years. They're familiar with it. They understand their leverages. Going from meat to meat and doing that, you're not going to have the same familiarity with using those leverages or creating that mass under the bar. So it's not advisable to gain that fat. So say, for example, you're going from 198 and usually weigh in around 197, 198 because you cut a little bit and your normal walk around is like 205, 206. It's not advisable to walk into your first meet at 220 weighing 218, 219. Just eat as you normally do with maybe a little bit more, two or 300 extra calories. So all of a sudden you're weighing more like 209, 210 when you walk in there and you're comfortable and you're not lethargic and bloated. Um, every trip we take, you know, calories don't count. And usually we fly out on Friday and I feel great. We come back on Monday and I feel like death <laughs> because I've eaten like Chick-fil-A and pizza and hamburgers and that quality of food or lack thereof is really hard on my body. And that's why we say don't eat it on meat day because you're not going to perform with it. Yeah. So you have to take that into consideration, Joey, that just because you're going up a class isn't a free pass to eat shit. Yeah. I think that. Uh... 
I just showdown was 148 and surge I'm competing at 165. I will probably only weigh in at surge at like 154. Um, so I'm going to be a good 10 to 11 pounds lighter than the top end of my weight class, but I am comfortable. Like I sit at 154 without much effort. Like that's just, just me, normal, just me yeah. eating normal. Um, I could, where I'm sitting, I could absolutely easily cut down to 148 again, but I'm not going to because I don't care. Right. Um, so you don't, yeah, you don't have to fill out the weight class for any reason. Um, just because you're in that weight class. Just if you're, if you've been training, if you are a 220 and you've been training at 210 the whole time, just stay at 210. Also, don't, yourself. don't be that lifter that cuts five or six pounds when you're not even in the top three for the Wilkes. Yeah. That doesn't help yeah, anybody. Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> help. That always backfires. Uh, good question from Jenna. This is also one that we get all the time. Recommendations on how to best warm up for all three on meet day. What do you do normally? Bingo. <laughs> what, what? Why you would do you normally? do something different on meet day than you do from every training day? If you, go ahead. Go ahead. If, you, if you've already been hitting PRs and prep doing the same warm-ups, um, or even like trending towards PRs with your warm-ups in prep, those are the ones that are obviously yep. working for you, so those are the ones that you should keep doing. The only difference I say is usually take less of them. So I usually will write some pre prescribed warm-ups for some people, and it might be like two sets of this, two sets of that, two sets of this. I would maybe just do one set, one set, one set, and a few less warm-ups because we want to conserve energy. So if you're that person in the gym who makes like 20 or 30 pound jumps, Take a couple first warm-ups at 30 to 40 pound jumps, you know, one or two less warm-up attempts on the way up to that max weight to conserve a little bit of energy, but just enough to get warm. But it should be the exact same thing you do in, in training because that's what's worked in training. Why would you change it on meet day? Absolutely. Um, okay. Question. I have sometimes pain in my hips when I conventional deadlift. Any suggestions? Sometimes have pain in your hips when you conventional deadlift. Yes. Also non-specific because... Feel like I don't even know where the pain is. Is it anterior? Is it yeah. posterior? Is it lateral? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's like three possible different answers here for depending on where it's at. Like it could actually, it could be your adductors, it could be your glutes, it could right. be your hips. Like there are so many different answers for what this could possibly be. You have to be specific on what part. I've had a random person just only have the pain when they're belted, and it's because it turned out that the belt was just jamming into their hip flexor every single time because it was too big of a belt. They were a small frame person. Uh, it's a non-specific question, so it's hard to give a specific answer. Neither will I because it involves pain. My most common and stock answer, and you guys are probably tired of hearing it, if you have pain, get evaluated by a clinician. Mm -hmm. You don't want to assume, you don't want to guess and self-diagnose and then say, well, I'll try this, I'll try that. Understand what the underlying issue is, create a plan to treat it and work around it or improve upon it. But if you don't know what it is, sight unseen, I don't either. <laughs> Especially with that description. So, you know, it's one of those things where it, it really pays to get looked at by a clinician and let them diagnose you as the doctor will do and tell you what you're working with. And then it's a lot easier to create an action and, and formidable plan to improve upon these things. Without any clue or idea, you're just throwing darts in the dark and you might actually hit yourself with one. Actually, you're like throwing spaghetti because it's messier. Mom's spaghetti? Mom's you're sweaty? My hands, my are sweaty. Palms are sweaty. Mom's spaghetti. Knees weak, arms are heavy. Eminem opened up his own spaghetti shop in Detroit and yeah. he actually served food on the first day and I think that that's wonderful. So I don't really ever really want to go to Detroit, but now I want to go to this Eminem spaghetti shop in Detroit. It's actually, I think, I, call, I think it's called Mom's Spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Mom's Spaghetti. Yeah. He owns a restaurant in Detroit. It's kind of cool. Uh, hopefully just one chin, <laughs> but the, the goatee will hide it. 
sitting at 216 right now, and this is the heaviest I've ever been. I really don't want to get any heavier. So yeah, you probably actually, and it sounds strange going into a meet. I don't know when your meet is. You might want to clean up a little bit and actually weigh a little bit less. I don't feel very good when I'm above 211, so that's usually like my ceiling point of where I want to be. Uh, I can't lie that when we do seminars and I eat food with everybody, I come back weighing like 221. And then I'm back to like 211 in four days. It's pretty wild because I bloat with the best of them, which is why I can do those big cuts because my recomp is very, very successful. Not so much a strong recomper, very strong recomper. I, I hold water as if I was a pool. So, <laughs> so it just helps. All right, let me see if there's more questions. There's a lot here. Do you guys typically do anything after flying to a meet in terms of stiffness, flight fatigue, hydration? It yes. Well, it also depends on why we're flying. So mm -hmm. if we're flying for a meet, um, generally once we land for the meet, we're going to be like going to the grocery store to grab supplies. So we're moving around, moving, uh, not sitting stagnant. If we're flying for a seminar, generally after we land, we go lift mm -hmm. to get rid of that fatigue and stiffness. Um, because that's the only way to get rid of stiffness is to keep moving. Movement so. is medicine, motion is lotion. Yeah. So for for seminar flying, we usually will if we don't get in late, we usually go to the gym we're doing the seminar at or a gym that's close by and just do a light workout or movement, full range stuff. Uh, meat wise, I have my daily dose of movement that I do every day that includes things like wall slides, thoracic rotations, single leg RDLs, uh, QL hikes and stuff like that now. Those are the things I'll usually do. When we get off a plane, I, I feel awful because I've been sitting for several hours. Um, so when we actually get to the hotel, that's one of the first things I'll, I'll do is start doing wall slides and thoracic rotations and QL hikes and single leg RDLs and stuff like that. Nothing heavy or fatiguing, just to get loose and move around because I don't like feeling stiff. Uh, even now, I'm done today. I'm, I did my last deload workout yesterday, squats and, and uh, bench. Today we went into the garage and we just did like light band face pulls, lateral raises, upright rows, tricep push-ups with a band, very, very light. Um, Single leg RDLs for like sets of five with no weight, just body weight, just to move. Cause I, I don't like to feel stagnant and stiff. I like to have blood flow. I like that circulation going. So that's usually what I'll do. I noticed tons of videos of Stacy actually doing it in the airport. So when Stacy would be like waiting for connecting flights, you'll see her doing like single leg RDLs and thoracic rotations on the floor. And there's no reason you can't do that either. Uh, people will look at you like you're crazy, but when they look at you like they're crazy, they also leave you alone, which is wonderful. Yeah, also, are you ready to see those people again? No, no, I've never. Other than the TSA person who recognizes Riley for her hair every yeah, time, I, I don't recognize a single person in the airport. Like, I can't go anywhere because I'm very distinguishable, and everyone remembers yep. who I am. So that's a problem. Yep, it, it was it was great. She's like, y'all are here every week. We're like, yes, yes, we are. We're tired of it too. Like, please stop addressing me. When is the best time to take cold nutrient, magnesium, glycinate, or is it a personal preference? Right before bed. That is a highly absorbable magnesium that does not affect your stomach, so it won't make you have to run to the bathroom, and it is highly absorbed, so the best time to take that is to relax and calm down right before bed. Like 30 minutes before bed, take your magnesium glycinate, glass of water, eight ounces, chill, relax, allow yourself to relax, that's the best time to take it. Um, I do take magnesium twice a day. I take two different forms of it. So like, I take chelated or chelated magnesium in the morning, and it's responsible for nerve function, stuff like that. So I take that with breakfast. I take the magnesium glycinate at night before bed. So I take two different forms for two different reasons. Um, the dose before bed is much bigger than my dose in the morning. It's just to have you know a balance between calcium and magnesium. So when we train and stuff like that, we have minerals in our system, especially because we train outdoors in the garage most of the time. It's pretty hot. We sweat out minerals, so I make sure to put them in there and stuff. So I like to preload before I get out there to make sure I'm prepared to have everything in my body because once you've already dehydrated, depleted, it's too late. You want them in your before, ahead of time. So that's actually a great question is when to take certain things. Also, we'll see you this weekend. Yes, we're going to see That's Jess Bringer. If you guys don't know who she is, she's like one of the strongest women and probably the strongest woman in the world. And just No big deal. No big deal. 
Uh, we're going to work together on Friday and just go over some things, probably whatever gym, there's like 800 of them in Illinois. You're welcome. Chicago. Better. Um, better hot dogs, better pizza in Chicago. Although it's the same, but it's just better. Plus, plus when I tell people like going to Illinois, like what the hell's in Illinois? When I tell people to go to Chicago, I'm like, oh cool, Chicago. It just well, sounds can, better. I don't know what, like... I don't know why you're saying that you can't say that you you can't say Chicago. You can say Chicago. We're not competing in Chicago. We're competing in Carol Stream. But yeah. like the gym that we're going to with Je- for Jess is going to be in Chicago. Yeah, probably. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it doesn't matter. You can call it Chicago. Everyone knows where it is. Actually, have people know most people don't even know that Chicago is in Illinois. Yeah, it's hilarious. Um, I, I probably didn't either. I just like Chicago's not a state. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had geography geography class since like middle school, so I don't know. I know. Um, opinions on squatting or deadlifting barefoot. Okay. To some degree, this is focusing on the minutia. I will have athletes sometimes squat or deadlift barefoot just so I can get a gauge of what is going on with their feet and how they're rooting. If I think like they have happy feet or they don't have great pressure or equal pressure with their feet. Somehow squatting barefoot or deadlifting barefoot doesn't make you better at squatting or deadlifting just because you're barefoot. It doesn't necessarily strengthen your foot either. But sometimes people don't wear the appropriate footwear. What I say by that is like, okay, so hot button here, Squat University talked about Chuck Taylors being too narrow. I fucking love deadlifting and Chuck Taylors because I wedge against the sidewall so hard. In competition, I'll wear my Sabos because they're a little lower to the ground and they have the same traction. But whenever I'm training and it's not competition time, I'm always in my Chuck Taylors for my, my sumo deadlift because it's actually like a slight deficit. It's a, a half inch higher than my Sabos. So it's like always doing my sumo to slight deficit, which actually makes it a little bit harder for me to break the ground, which one of the things that actually helped me improve breaking my ground was always being at that deficit and wedging against the sidewall. Do I like squatting them in as much? No, because I want to be able to spread my toes and grip the floor. So it's not the most ideal squat shoe, but it doesn't necessarily make it a bad shoe. Um, being barefoot is not like going to unlock some super magical power other than the ability to actually feel the floor and root and grab the floor, which some people just don't know how to do because they're so used to wearing like tennis shoes or sneakers that they've lost touch with that ground connection and their toes. So if you have really sloppy feet and don't know how to have that connection, it could be beneficial for you at times to squat or deadlift barefoot to get that connection. Is it going to make you a superhero? No. Is it going to sell some really ugly shoes? Probably. I would also like to point out that for the majority of federations, minus one, mm-hmm. which is RPS, you have to wear shoes when you compete. So I'm generally, I like to practice how I play, right? So I'm generally not going, if I'm going to get totally used to squatting barefoot, then I better only be competing in RPS because I feel like if you're going to continuously squat barefoot and then randomly just on meet day decide to throw on your shoes, like what was the point kind of in my, in my opinion, and this obviously does, isn't how everyone else has to think, but like, if I'm going to wear, so at the showdown, I made the mistake of wearing a different belt on meet day because it was a belt that I had just gotten in and I was like, okay, I specifically ordered this for deadlifts for showdown. And I did not do great with deadlifts. So I will not be wearing that belt until I get consistently used to wearing that belt in training. Right, so nothing like, new on meet day. Yeah, so like on meet day, I'm going to wear my old belt again. But like if I'm planning on competing in a specific shoe or in a specific belt, I'm going to train in that shoe and that belt for my whole prep so that way I can get used to it and then that way it just feels like something that I always do. So if I'm going to, for me, if I was going to barefoot train all the time to the point where I got really, really good at barefoot training and that made some sort of magically huge difference for me, then I'm only going to compete RPS. But personally, I don't, I don't see the huge allure to squatting barefoot. Like there are 
minimalistic shoes and flat shoes for a reason. Like our sabos are very low to the ground. Mm -hmm. I can feel the ground with my feet because of how low they are. So I also think that it's like majoring in the minors here. Um, it's probably not something that's going to add a hundred pounds to your lift. You know. If it were, nobody would ever buy shoes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so every every shoe company would be out of business because well, like you'd just be better barefoot. But it's just like it's like the Chuck Taylor thing, you know, like with Squat University. Some people have really narrow feet. You know, like my feet are very small. A Chuck Taylor is not I have room. I I appreciate that. <laughs> I have room on the side of my Chuck Taylors where my toes are. Um, you know, same thing with like bands and stuff. So I I, I don't know. It's gonna always come down to individual differences, individual yeah. preferences. Uh for instance, I like a flat shoe for squat. I feel like I have more power with a flat shoe. That doesn't mean I have a minimalist shoe though because I do like the stiffness mm -hmm. of the bottom sole that gives me some traction. This is one of the reasons why I like squatting in like Vans High Tops or the Reebok Power Channel Lights because they're very stiff on the bottom even though they are flat. They don't have curvature and so forth. Uh, that is one plus of the chuck as well. It's flat shoe. It might be too narrow for some people but you can just get a wider version of it called Vans. <laughs> yeah. Simple as that. Uh, okay, so this question I thought it is actually like really important to touch on. You answered it kind of facetiously in your story, but I think it is an important one. This has to be the adventure race one? Yes. Okay. So it's, I have a Spartan race six days before my powerlifting meet. How would you approach those six days? My answer was classic. I'm like, I'd be relaxed as fuck because I wouldn't do anything that silly six days before my powerlifting meet. I just, I, I feel like this is an important one to, um, to address because I do feel like there are a lot of lifters who want to be in a dual sport right so whether like um i've had i've had lifters that want to do like strongman and powerlifting you've had lifters that want to do triathlons and powerlifting spartan races and powerlifting um i had a brazilian someone who did bjj brazilian jiu-jitsu and powerlifting um and i don't know what possesses every single one of them to want to do those competitions within a week of each other but it literally happens like that every single time like I, I had one client who um, did a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament. Uh, I think hers was the week after the powerlifting meet, which actually I would, I would prefer. Right. I think that, that would make more sense in my opinion, um, and and everything like that. But I just feel like people always are like, well, I'm going to do this triathlon and then I'm going to powerlift, or I'm going to do this cycling event and then I'm going to powerlift. And it's like, if you want one of them to be great that's which one you need to focus on or you need to i think you need to split them up you know like maybe if you want to do one powerlifting meet a year and one spartan race a year pick them at opposite times mm -hmm. you know so like one's in october and one's in april so that way they're opposite of each other and you can actually adequately train specifically for that one but if you're doing a spartan race the week before that is a lot of endurance and that is also a lot of power output because spartan races you have to do like climbing over walls and like uh, climbing under things, running, sprinting, jumping, pulling yourself up. Like you're, you're expressing a lot of endurance and uh, power output and everything like that. So when you get to the powerlifting meet, you're exhausted. Even if, there's, even if you do nothing for those six days in between, you're exhausted because you've exerted all the energy that you possibly could. Mentally and physically. Yeah, yeah, six days before. So I think strategy-wise, like if you're wanting to do something endurance-based and powerlifting-based, you should do the powerlifting-based first and then the endurance second. People will usually use the argument of the David Epstein book called Range. And in there, he argues that a generalist will beat a specialist nine times out of ten. And he gives plenty of examples of that, and it's true. He's not wrong. However, that's from people who don't actually read the book. They just look at the outline. 
He's talking about during your formative years as a youth. A kid who plays five or six different sports and activities is going to grow up to be a better athlete than a kid who plays one because a specialist only knows how to do one thing. He's not talking about it after you're 19, 20, 20 years old, 30, and you've already done growing. At that point, it pays to be a specialist. Now, the specialist beats the generalist nine times out of 10 because they don't have to divert their focus. They can focus on the one task. And if you're focused on many things, you're not achieving them all as well as you could have. You have to narrow your scope, you have to narrow your focus, and like Riley said, separate them by time. If you want to be a dual or tri-sport athlete, that is fine. Don't put them six days apart from each other because you're going to detract from one or the other. What happens if you sprain your knee on one of the obstacles in a Spartan race? How are you going to squat? What happens when you're going to the, the meet fatigued or scraped up or beat up and you can't put your belt on because there's scrapes on your back from the mud pits or whatever? You know, that's, like I said, it's just poor planning. That's what, that's what I said in my response. It's just really poor planning. Uh, there's no reason you can't do both sports, but there's also no reason you need to do them six days apart. Well, even as a, even as a kid, as the youths, uh, like I, I played basketball, I ran track, and I played volleyball. We had seasons. Yep. You know, so like volleyball was from here to here. Track was from here to here. Basketball was from here to here. If there was any overlap, it was generally only the end of a season with the beginning of a season where there were no matches or any games yet. So even even as an actual athletic an athlete doing sports, they separate them. So I just I agree that it could be better planning. But I just I thought that that was just uh, important to bring up because it's not the first time that. No, it happens all the time. Yeah. You know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And if you want to be able to be in both sports or three sports, you have to learn how to make them into seasons and yes. so forth. Uh, this is a question I actually really want to answer because Frankie Fresh says, I'm late in joining, but how – oops, sorry. It went up. Let me scroll back. How has the quick meet turnaround been mentally? Have you found it easy to flip the switch back on? Uh, dude, I don't need hype. Uh, we are hype. What I mean by that is I enjoy this so much, I'm going to look forward to it, whether I'm tired, whether I'm fresh, whether I'm happy or I'm sad. The bar is my favorite thing outside of Riley and my son in the entire world. I love lifting. Any opportunity to get the lift is great. The fact that I get to do this four weeks apart and it's a little bit different, that's why we're both walking in a weight class up. There is no mental burden of going out there. We're going to see awesome people. We're going to have a good time. If you are stressing about a meet, it's because you didn't prepare for it. We did the showdown, we prepared for that as best we could with things going on in life, and we had a, a good time. We're gonna do this meet too, we're gonna have an even better time. It hasn't been stressful at all, and I have no expectations. We're literally just doing this for fun because that's what you do it for, you do it for fun. Unless you're one of the best in the world or in the money, you don't have to put any stress on it. You either PR your lips or you don't. So what, at the end of the day, you're gonna learn from it, go on, you're gonna have a good time. Enjoy the environment, enjoy the meat. You should never be stressed out about going into a meat. If you're stressed out about going to meat, you've done something wrong or you haven't done enough of something that you're worried about. I squat, I bench, I deadlift every single week. I'm prepared for this. Yeah. Well, even if you even if you are in the money, like the only pressure that you're putting on yourself is is the only I mean you're the only person who's putting pressure on yourself yeah. to be in the money. So uh and if you're if you're in the money and you're like you're like, well, I have to win this because of X, Y, Z. If you have to win a powerlifting meet to like pay a bill or something, you need different priorities in general. But no, I mean, I, I've actually been asked a couple times, um, you know, like, how are you feeling with the meet? Uh, and I'm like, I'm just ready to have fun. Like that's, and I've even put that in a couple of my Just captions. what I'm doing on Saturday. It's no big yeah. deal. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, like, you know, we all, we all want to do really, really well. And obviously like, you know, going to the showdown or like the current or whatever it is, if you're, if you're competing in like an invitational meet, yeah, there's some pressure there because you're, you are, you're like, okay, well you hit the qualifying total and now I'm going to compete against other people who are just as good as me, if not better. 
that's always going to put a little bit of pressure on you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's something that we elect to do and it's something that we choose to right. do. And it's something that's always going to be fun to me. Like, I could be going for the top spot and I'm still going to be like, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Because uh, I love lifting. You, you made a point there is you don't have to do this. Yeah. You chose to do this. And so you should enjoy this. This was your choice to do it. Just like that, that person wanted to do a Spartan race six days before me. You chose to do that, so you're going to have to kind of deal with the, the things that come with it. You chose to do this. There shouldn't be any stress. There shouldn't be any volatility in life because you've done this. You chose to do this. This is what you enjoy doing. Yeah. And if you don't enjoy doing this, you're not going to be doing it very long term. I've talked about this a lot. 50% of powerlifters will stop competing after five years. Mm -hmm. They burn out. They can't handle it. 75% will be gone after 10 it, we're looking at like 5 to 10% that are still here and still competing 15 years later. So that's an achievement in its own right for me because I'm still here and I'm still competing at that level and I'm still enjoying every second of it. So it lets me know I've done things well. I've done things right along the way that I can still look forward to doing this and what I get to do. This is my purpose. This is my passion. If it's not, you're not going to enjoy it. And you have to find a way to make it your passion and make it something you enjoy. And that comes from not stressing about it. It's not always going to be a perfect day. Like I said, in most cases, if, you, if someone's gone nine for nine every time, it's because they've only competed once or they haven't tested themselves. I don't know any lifter who's done multiple meets who's gone nine for nine every time. And that's always our expectation. Our expectation is like, we're going to go to the meet, we're going to hit these numbers, we're going to go nine for nine. The likelihood of that happening is less and less and less every single time you compete. The, the quick turnaround, I mean, it is tiring, but like that's something that we expect. Like, I'm very tired and I know that I'm fatigued, but I'm still like, oh, I can't wait. You know, like I can't, can't wait to go out there and like have fun and lift weights. And, you know, like for me, my expectation uh, is just to do better than five for nine at the showdown. <laughs> so like, you know, um, I'm just, I don't know, like it's a good redemption thing for me, but I am intrinsically motivated. So like my goal, whenever I... Like generally I tell Trevor like what my goals are for the meet. Um, just like let him know, you know, because we're a team. Uh, and my goals are generally always, I want to be to me. Like I don't think that I ever came to you. I kind of also want to be you. <laughs> wow. Metaphorically <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking. Uh, I think like, like I think you would agree though. Like even like Showdown yep. and this meet, both, all of my goals for both of those meets were things that I have to do. It wasn't like, oh, well, I want to hit this and hopefully beat this person or whatever. It was like, well, I would like to achieve this total. I would yeah. like to achieve this, whatever. It's like, I don't care. I've been asked that so many times. What are you going to do? So-and-so is in your class. I'm like, cool. I'm going to shake his hand and get to be his friend. We're going to have a good fucking time. There, uh, there's been a meets where I've like had the uh, long time ago, rum seven where I ate nothing but protein bars. John Hack was like his first major meet and he didn't have much money. He was sharing yeast leaves with Pete Rubish and he had no food. And I fed John Hack, we've been friends, and, and I see him now for like eight years in different meets and different things. You know, Andy Huang and all these guys. You're going to meet cool people that are going to become lifelong friends you're going to enjoy. Uh, I met Charlie, who I coach, at, at meets. I think he competed in his first meet with Battle of the Bay 3. And um, here he is now, you know, one of the best 198s in the world. And he's going to be there this weekend at Showdown Meet. He has athletes competing. He's become a very well-known and respected coach in the process. You're going to meet awesome people. You're going to have a good time. Stop expecting a number and start expecting an experience. Yeah. Expect an experience more so than a number because the numbers are going to come if you keep putting in the time and you keep putting in the effort. The experience is what you really get to take away and have memories and laugh forever and fulfillment. That's what gives you purpose. Experiences is what's going to give you purpose. It's what's going to give you direction. The numbers are going to come from time, effort, and consistency. That's kind of out of your control. As long as you just keep doing this, you'll get better at it. Yeah. And like, 
I don't know, if it doesn't go that great this weekend, like, oh, shucks, I'm going to get another chance to do it whenever <laughs> I want to do it again. You yeah, know? you simply just sign up for another I meet just, and try again. I'm just going to do another meet. So. The world didn't end. Yeah, uh, it could. Yeah. Right. Well, this is going to end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're probably about that time. It's about time. So, Thank you guys for jumping in. Awesome questions this week. I appreciate all the questions, even if they're silly or I come down on you a little bit. It's all part of that learning process. So I appreciate you guys who shared the podcast. I appreciate you guys. We appreciate the ones who joined the podcast and appreciate those of you who followed and support Culture Nutra. That's really awesome. And hopefully I'm going to get to see some of you guys or girls this weekend in Chicago. And if I don't know you, please come up and say hi. Yeah. <laughs> <I'll> stop saying <laughs> Dynamite dropping money. Thank you. All right, so appreciate you guys staying through two takes of this one. We knew I see I did jinx it at the beginning with the no audio. Oh well. All right, thank you guys.